Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, uh, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast. I'm delighted today to have uh, Roger Armstrong uh, with me. Hello, Roger. Paul, good morning. And also, um, Neil Wilsonhoe. Neil, how are you? I'm very well, Paul, and good morning. <laughs> good morning to you. Now, look, th- these, these two blues are um, always interesting to talk uh, always interesting to talk to you about a whole range of subjects, and you may have heard our previous two podcasts uh, talking about COVID. But today we want to talk about football. We want to talk about Everton on on the pitch specifically. I think both Neil and Roger have some fantastic opinions uh, about our club, about our players, about the manager, about football in general. And from my perspective, they're not heard often enough. So um, I'm going to sort of chair this uh, this podcast. Um, but most of the contributions, I think, should and will come from uh, Roger and Neil. So um, two two games back into the uh, into project restart. Um, Roger, I'm going to come to you first. What's what's your initial opinions? Um, I think you know I was very critical about it and and whether it was the right thing to do to bring football back when. You know, 50,000 people had lost their lives and we were still in the middle of a pandemic. But I think Germany and other countries opened and showed the way. And, and I, think, I, I think the Premier League's done a decent job. Um, I, think, I think Sky have done a decent job in their coverage. Um, I don't think the BBC should ever be allowed to cover football because they're so appalling at it. Um, they, they, they just, you know, I mean, last night we were watching Neverton Norwich and, and they seem to be singing Yid Army in the background. You know, uh, the, the, the whole crowd noise was, was awful with BBC and the commentators haven't got a clue. Um, I think what we've, what we've seen in a small number of games, I don't know, 12, 14 games that have been played, um, is that without the crowd, it's a totally different experience. It's almost out-of-body experience, although I really, really enjoyed the Merseyside derby because I felt I could concentrate on the football. There were no distractions. There was no, you know crowd baying for blood and I enjoyed that as a spectator Um, but I think what we've seen is the clubs and the players who are able to motivate themselves and they are Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool of course annoyingly, Southampton, Wolves, um, I I think Everton kind of middling, very good performance in the derby, happy with that but really quite drab yesterday against an awful Norwich team. And I didn't see much motivation from the players themselves. Interesting. Neil, um, and, and, your, and your initial opinions or thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I find it almost unwatchable, to be honest. Um, it feels, you know, most of the games so far have been below the intensity that we expect in the Premier League. It does feel very much like starting the season again. Um, with the first couple of games where you get you can see teams with varying levels of fitness, you get some strange performances and some strange results, and where games are generally played at a slightly lower intensity until um, true match fitness kicks in um, evenly across the league. So there's that element to it that it's definitely being being played at a lower intensity for the most part than is normal. And then you've got the viewing experience. So um, we've chosen to watch the games without any of the crowd noise, either on the Sky channels that give you that option or just simply by muting the television. And that's generally improved the experience because it also eliminates the terrible platitudes you get on as standard from English football commentary. Um, and some of the games have been okay to watch. I actually quite enjoyed um, watching Tottenham West Ham the other day. It, you know, I had nothing on the game and I quite enjoyed watching it. The Merseyside Derby was the typical difficult watch. Um, Roger's absolutely right about the BBC. They shouldn't be allowed anywhere near football as the coverage yesterday was awful. So, yeah, I, I would agree with Roger that overall 
the Premier League have done an okay job getting it back on. It's definitely not authentic. It's not quite the Premier League as we know it, but it, it's, you know, my, my my son is showing more interest in it than he would have done normally. So I suppose that's a, that's a, a strange thing. Just because it's so surreal, it's almost sucked him in because it feels slightly different. Mm. Interesting. Um, I, I took the view that it should never have restarted um, and therefore decided that uh, it would be hypocritical of me to watch the the games, um, having taken such a strong view. So I've decided I'm not going to watch any of the games. So it's difficult for me to comment on it. Um, By judging other people's opinions, people such as yourselves, whom I trust, uh, largely positive. Um, But I think ultimately both football and the broadcasters will come to realize that they uh, have damaged the game and damaged their own particular brands by this uh, seemingly rush to get back to to playing football i think um i think long term football will uh, will be damaged by this but um we want to talk about everton specifically i guess so um but it was interesting just to get in, in initial thoughts as to how the uh, restart had finished. Um, our, our dear old team in blue, uh, we left the end of the regular season with a terrible performance and we didn't appear to be going anywhere very quickly. Uh, any evidence that we've um, improved over the period that we've been away? Neil? I, I think we, for the most part, since Ancelotti took over, setting aside that appalling performance at Chelsea, we have been better organised than we ever were under Marco Silva. Yeah. You know, generally, when you see us on the pitch at the moment, you can kind of see what we're doing. You can see the formation we're setting up in when we don't have the ball, and you can see how we're changing that formation when we do have possession. So that's a positive. You know, just the fact that we actually look like we're coached and that we have a plan. But the weaknesses in the team remain obvious. And first and foremost for me is the fact that we don't have a midfield. Now, injuries are not helping that, obviously. But to be honest, does anybody think we'd be any better if Delph was fit, for example? Um, And we can't pass the ball. We can't retain possession. So we rely very heavily on being very organised, on having a solid back line, which Ancelotti has done tremendous work with because we had one of the worst defences in the Premier League under Silva. And having two strikers who are a threat to score in most games if you can get the ball to them. So there are are good bits and bad bits, I think. uh, But, you know, I'm I'm, I'm encouraged that at least we're not a shambles. Roger, I I always remember the great excitement that you expressed when um, it first became apparent that we were even talking to Angelotti, let alone... Um, getting him as a manager, and of yeah. course, when we did get him as a manager, you um, you were off the charts with uh, with with delight. Uh, mm-hmm. So far, has he um, proved to be what you thought he might be? Yeah, look, I'd give him seven and a half, eight out of ten so far. Um, I, I'm I'm a little bit um, irritated by the ease with which he appears to have slotted into this Everton family business. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. On the pitch, tactically, um, no other coach, no other coach would have got us that goal as draw against Liverpool, in my opinion. Um, You know, look what they did to Palace last night. They score at will. They've got the right players in the right position and cover for almost everyone in the midfield and the uh, fullback areas. Uh, Up front, they're devastating. And I thought we were superb against them. I thought Seamus Coleman had one of his best games in a number of years, keeping Mane out of it. I thought Seamus did well again last night. Um, Holgate, you know, I've never been his biggest fan, but he really is proving to be much more consistent and reliable. And a centre-half who's able to dominate, come out with the ball, and he looks he looks fine. Um, Richarlison is trying. Calvert-Lewin, again, is looking like a Premier League footballer. I think he needs to work more on his anticipation and his pace and gambling a bit more on the back pass and, you know, pressurising the keeper. 
But I agree completely with Neil. I think our midfield is just, it is non-existent. It doesn't matter. You know, I feel for Gomez because obviously he's rushed back and he had a terrible injury. And those are the sorts of injuries that you don't necessarily come back from. He seemed timid. He seemed quiet. Um, Tom Davis is Tom Davis. He loses the ball more than he should. Alex Iwobi, goodness knows what he's even in, on the pitch to do. Um, and, and I was encouraged by playing Anthony Gordon. Slightly disappointed he didn't start him again, give him a bit more confidence. Bernard yesterday, quite ineffective, knocked off the ball easily. And Pickford, I mean, Jordan Pickford just kicks the ball into touch. <laughs> what are you doing that for? You know, playing out from the back, we are not comfortable with that. Um, and Carlo's got his work cut, cut out. Um, the question is how many he can get rid of and do a sort of, um, as they've done with Schneiderlin, I think, uh, behind the scenes, paid some of his wages just to get him off the books and reduce the losses. Because football's all about time. It's all about timing. And we just can't. We need new players, three, four, five new players. We cannot go another season with Gilfie Sigurdsson in the number 10 shirt. Whether he's playing or not, he's a drain on resources. He needs to go and play somewhere else. Um, and we need a bit more pace and width. Um, and, and we need a proper centre-half, and we could use a captain as well. So, yeah, Carlo's got his hands full, but we've got the best manager we could ever possibly dream of in the circumstances. It's, <laughs> the, 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 given the amount of money that's been spent, this sort of positive resource is, is, is incredible, isn't it, Neil? Uh, we, we have wasted vast amounts of money, um, you, you often see that in clubs where there's managerial instability, and we've had that spades. Um, every club, every manager buys players um, that they like and to fit what they want to do, and every club buys players with some of them do well and some of them do badly when you buy them. That's normal. Um, but we, we've compounded, you know, sort of bad decisions one after the other through three or four managers now which has given us a squad which is 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 a really strange patchwork we've got some tremendous players and we do you know Holgate's been a revelation this season he's he's been absolutely outstanding um we have in Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin in the forward line that most teams in the Premier League would would gladly um you know have on their books but we have just gigantic holes in really important positions. Um, you know, we, we, have, we don't have a central midfielder, in my opinion, who's truly Premier League level. I mean, I think the jury's out on Gomez. He doesn't really affect games. He's neat. He's tidy. If he was played next to somebody more dynamic, he could be an influence. But too often he just gets washed out of games and, and the rest of our midfield I, I don't really disagree with anything that Roger just said in, in characterising them I think Iwobi is a player in search of a position he was actually he's been better the, the two, these two games he's been solid defensively and when he moved inside yesterday we saw that maybe that's his long term position but you know, that, that that's uh, to be proven. So, yeah, I mean, we've wasted money. We've got an expensive squad. We've got high wages. And we're a mid-table team. And we deserve to be a mid-table team. Of course, I, I guess the, the question leading on from what you both say, and I know you, that you've both got um, slightly different views on this, is uh, the effectiveness of um, Marcel Brands. Um, you know, he's been at the club now for, for two years, uh, notwithstanding all of the managerial uh, changes and stuff. Um, yeah, let's let, let's have that discussion because I know you both have different views. Roger, let's come to you first because you have, I suspect, a slightly um, more negative view of uh, Marcel than Neil does. Well, <laughs> look, I think when we got him, it was heralded as a fantastic appointment. The guy had done a wonderful job, PSV. Some clever signings and some youth, uh, good, excellent uh, youth players that he brought through, and and it augured well. Um, but and, and I know that he inherited an absolute sack of nonsense, really, of, of, a, a complete mishmash of ineffective players, seventeen number tens, and and 
a lot of people on high wages, difficult to get them off the books. But as we've proven with Schneidlin, you can get players off the books and just take the hit. Because if a player isn't working for whatever reason, could be personal circumstances, could be doesn't fit into the formation style of play of a new manager, it is, there is no point keeping him at the club. But, it, but if we look at the players that, that Brands has signed, I mean, we came in with a strategy and the club have done videos about him being the architect. I, mean, I don't know what type of house he's trying to build. I really don't know what type of house you're trying to build if you sign Fabian Delph. Fabian Delph was injury prone, always um, you know, got lucky to go to Man City and win, uh, win some uh, trophies, but injury prone. Um, and I really don't understand Alex Iwobi as a signing. It was a last minute panic signing. Um, Yerry Mina, has he proved himself? Dunno, bit injury prone. And I'm always wary of buying players from Barcelona because they don't sell good players. Um, Bernard, I don't know whether you include Bernard in the in the um, Brands roster, but from what we hear, Brands was uh, sorry, uh, Bernard was was hawked around Europe, and we were the only ones prepared to pay his wages. I don't know what his stats are like, but as he as he ten assists, be lucky, half a dozen goals. I don't, I don't see it. Um, Richarlison, he can't take the credit for Richarlison because Richarlison only came because of silver. Um, and, and I'm just struggling to see many hits there. You know, Gomez, if he hadn't had the injury, Gomez looked like he was going to be the man. The issue is whether he's a six or whether he's an eight and is he caught between the two? Don't know. Um, but I'm struggling. I mean, Sidibe, I don't understand Sidibe. I said that all along. I think when I flipped about, about um, Brands was when... They let Kenny go to Schalke to get first-team football and brought in Sadibi on loan, which is completely the opposite of what you should be doing, I would have thought, in terms of developing your own, your own youngsters. And Sadibi's been poor, um, consistently poor. Um, so I don't see that many hits, I'm afraid. And, and therefore, you know, two years in and he's saying, oh, I've still got a big clear-out needed. Come on, you know, I think he can do better. I expected him to have done better, let's put it that way. Okay. The, the, I, I'm assuming the contrary view for Neil. Yeah, a, a partial contrary view. I mean, there's no question that Marcel Brands's track record before Everton is impressive. His track record at Everton is a mixed bag. I think my my view is that we have a we have a club and a board that is still dysfunctional, and it's hard for any executive or manager or coach to function at their best in that environment. So we have to look at the totality of the things that Brands wants to achieve. Some of that is obviously trading players, and he inherited a squad that is full of players who are underachieving on massive wages. And while Rogers writes that you can sometimes shift some of those players if you're prepared to take a big enough bath, the truth is our financial position is not strong enough and with the Premier League's um, cost control rules, etc., we've not been in a position to take big baths on lots of players in just to get them off the wages. Um, we've tried and we've wound up having to loan out an awful lot of players. I think the transfers inbound, I'm a bit more positive about. I mean, I think, you know, Gomez is a player who I'm, just, you know, I'm not convinced about. I like Dinia. Yeah, I think he, he's a solid left back. And I think, you know, statistically and performance wise, he's pretty consistent. He's not been quite at the same level this season as last, but we were a complete shambles for the first half of the season defensively. I actually quite like Mina as well, but he's one of those centre backs who's always got a mistake in him. And therefore you have to look at what he does in the rest of his game. And he has to score goals basically from set pieces to compensate for that. And we've not seen enough of that. Bernard, Bernard's a really nice, clever, neat player with no end product. So, yeah, I would agree with Roger on that one. It won't be, it won't be just too soon to judge. Um, he thinks he's a central midfielder. That's um, what Iwobi believes his best position is. And we've barely tried him in that position. So we'll have to wait and see um, whether that ever happens and whether he's right in his own um, his own beliefs but quietly behind the scenes some things are changing um, Unsworth's complete control over the academy has definitely been reduced 
um, despite him being popular in the board boardroom. And we we are moving away from our habit of keeping players long after we should have released them. Um, moving away from seeing the academy as being there to win under twenty three or under eighteen trophies, towards seeing it as something that has to produce players for the first team. That's not an overnight fix, but I actually see some positive signs there. So I'd say, if I'm looking at overall evidence for that, Neil. Yeah, I mean, I think the decisions we've made on um, player contracts both last summer and this summer have been more aggressive. Um, we've released more players more quickly um, than we have in the past, including you know, including players like Morgan Feeney this time around, etc. So, and I know from talking to people with some insight around the club that the change in the sort of personnel at the top of the academy and the clipping of Unsworth's wings, so he's really just a coach. Um, those are things that I think are positives, but they're not quick fixes either. So. Yeah, yes, the jury's out. I don't think we can be, we can say that Marcel Brands has done an incredible job for us so far because he hasn't. Um, but I think we're better off with him than without him because I think the alternatives of a, you know, an all-powerful coach and and so on is is not the way to build a modern football club. But, but Neil, he's kind of bulletproof now. He's on the board, and and the manager's always going to carry the can. And I was surprised that. Um, you know, Carlo agreed to that structure. I know he's kind of worked with directors of football in the past, but he's still been the main man. And w- when I look at brands I, I, and I look at clubs that sadly were having to compete with and who are sadly ahead of us, the likes of Wolves and Leicester, and I look at some of their recruitment and I wonder where the hell were we when Yuri Tielemans was around? You know, why were, where were we with James Madison? Where were we with, um, you know, Adama Traore even? You know, what... what where, where, how come these clubs can find these players excellent value and slot them into their playing style? Maybe the problem is we don't have a bloody playing style, and isn't that part of the? Isn't isn't that a, a, a problem for the director of football if if there is no real playing it, style per se? It is a problem, and it comes down to this slightly. You know, we have a board that's slightly schizophrenic. In the, they've gone out and hired a director of football. And one of the things that he's famous for is instituting consistency throughout the club. Absolutely. Um, and then we've not given him auth- enough authority over the academy to achieve that. And he's having to slowly wrest that, that authority. And the reasons are the age-old reasons, because, you know, we've got a great Evertonian, great blue, loved by Bill, etc., etc., in charge of the academy. And I'm not being critical of Brian because I actually think he's a pretty decent coach but he's been able to set his own agenda he's been able to have control over player acquisition he's had complete control over the formations that they played and it's taking time for the new guy to wrestle that control but I think we are beginning to see it we're less focused on um, winning things at the under 23s we're trying to loan players out and make a quick decision. If they do well on loan, then either we promote them to a higher loan or we or we um, reintegrate them into the squad. If they don't do well out on loan, we get rid of them. And I think we just need to continue to make these changes at the academy level because they're the things that over the medium to longer term will enable us to comp- compete more effectively. Wolves are a very special situation because they're basically the whole game Mendes 11. So, you know, they have, they have a pretty unique advantage. But Leicester, I think, is a, fair, is a fairer comparison. Um, but Leicester have built their approach um, over a period of time, and we're going to have to do the same. Patience is not a strong suit for Evertonians, um, which I understand, which I understand at one, at one level, but you know, 26 years, how patient, you know, 26 years without trophy, 25 years without trophy, how patient should we be? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, on the academy side in particular, brands has to be given complete control, and I still don't think that's that's happened. I think he's wrestled more control gradually, but I still think there's that reluctance in Bill and in Denise to sort of 
if you like, to make the the academy and Unsworth completely subservient to the director of football. And I think that's a fundamental flaw in our model. Yeah, I mean, we've got to be the only club that prioritises the academy over the first eleven. We talk more about the academy than we do about the first eleven. It's an absolute piece of nonsense. And brands should have sorted that out. You know, if you were going in to be, you know, sales director or finance director of a of a big company, um, you wouldn't go in in the knowledge that some other person was actually going to be running 25% of your empire and you didn't have any control over them. I mean, it's, it's an absolute piece of nonsense. Brands, it's a soft touch. He got rolled over and he should have got greater control from the outset because he, we're I've, losing I've, time. I've never met a Dutch guy who's a soft touch, but there are some cultural differences in the management styles to Brits and Americans. So Brits and Americans, you know, they love the 100 days, go in, clean broom, make loads of decisions quickly, often throw out a lot of the good with the bad. Sure. Brands is a much more cautious person. He's he's taken, he's used his first year really to understand the club and to see what he's got. He's tried to make some quick fixes in the transfer market, some of which worked and some of which didn't. Mm. And then, you know, the realities of our financial position are certainly handicapping us in the transfer market. But over the last year, I've seen, or I believe I've seen, improvements in how we're looking at the academy and a shift in how we're thinking about the academy. And I think if that can continue, then our future starts to look brighter. Um, But but we're still a couple of years away from being competitive, in my view. Yeah, well, Neil, you used a really interesting phrase there. Sorry, uh, Paul, to monopolise this bit, but Neil said that he took the first 12 months to understand the club. Now, I'd love to know what is the club that he's understood, because the club, as I understand it, needs a fundamental bloody change of culture. And and if all he's done is come in and spent a year understanding the club and embrace this nicey-nicey culture, cosy culture, then may as well, you know not have got him if, if, if he's just going to do that because the club needs change it needs drastic change if it wants to compete well does it not want to compete where do we want to be do we want to be top six top half are we happy with that do we want to try and win a trophy or do we not because i don't see to be honest i think we're going at, at best we're treading water yeah I, I i don't know what the club's ethos is um from a footballing perspective and i think most of us as fans and you know we're all old enough and lucky enough to have seen us win things yeah um you know the generation of our kids have not had that good fortune which is you know depressing um we certainly are a club who take our role in the community seriously and i think that's a good thing um we are a club who take our if you like the the, the charitable aspects um of our operation seriously that's not a bad thing either we're a club for whom identity matters and creating a sense of family and belonging is important that's also not a problem in itself it's only a problem if those things are seen as being the priorities for the club as opposed to winning things and your your views on that are very well known, Roger. You you're, you've been outspoken on this for quite a long time. That you know we feel like a charity with a football club attached, and it's not entirely unfair. Um, you know there are times where I look at the communications coming out or see you know a Denise interview in the Times and sit there and think to myself, just what are Everton? Um, you know, are are we actually ruthless enough and determined enough? and just focused enough to truly compete you know consistently at a high level now we've got loads of barriers towards trying to compete at a high level you know we are miles behind commercially we are the second club in a poor city um we you know we we're not we don't have the platform that we might have had 30 years ago in order to compete. And obviously that is a factor. But are we focused on being the best football club that we can be in terms of trophies, in terms of league position, in terms of success? Or do we see success in a broader fashion in terms of the kind of club we are and the identity and our impact on the community? And I I, I think 
you know, the questions you raise are fair and the criticism you raise is fair. And to be honest, I don't disagree with your conclusion either. Mm. I mean, when I, when I read her saying, uh, Denise, who has many qualities, many qualities, and is an excellent spokesperson and, and, and good at PR, as it were. But, but seriously, the Everton way is, and I'm quoting directly, sport at the service of humanity. I'm sorry, it's time to give up. Uh, that's just, that is 100% bullshit. I'm not having it. Every single football club tries to participate within its community and provide it. Every single football club, every single group of fans feel a sense of belonging and a sense of identity. That's why it's called a club. And, and you know, to, to be saying how much we've raised here and how much we've raised there, it's, look, it's laudable. Of course it's laudable. We all do what we can charitable causes and we choose to support those charities but i'm sorry i'm just not having that as the everton way the everton way should be winning trophies and the more successful we are the more money we generate and the more we can contribute to the good causes that we support it's that simple and and denise is just turning proper let's say proper success focused fans off because this is what i said earlier about carlo it's so cushy for him now I mean, he really, he's got no pressure on him whatsoever to achieve anything because he's embraced the Everton way and the Everton way of, you know, putting the community first, putting the charity first is fundamentally wrong. And for so long as that is the message, we will never, ever win another trophy. Sorry if that's unpopular, but that's just the way I see it. Ruthless people win, ruthless teams win, whether it's Jurgen Klopp, whether it's Alex Ferguson, whether it's Jose Mourinho, they win. And Carlo's won elsewhere. But in this kind of culture, he can't be ruthless. For, for what it's worth, and I think I've said this on a number of occasions, I, I concur totally with what you say, Roger. Um, but why do fans put up with it? Why, why do people, you know, this was the day before the Merseyside derby, and we've got a full page spread in the Times from our chief executive, who who supposedly is humble and yet makes it all about herself. I mean, it's complete nonsense. It's a I, sham. It's not reality. I don't, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. And I do know that some people in the organisation have asked her to tone that down. Um, I can only assume that it's either Bill or it's Farhad that said that because I doubt anybody else would have said it. Um, but it's not, it, it hasn't happened and it's not working. But why do Bill and Farhad need everyone to know that they've donated £400,000? Absolutely. That is, if there's one element in all of this that I would, I would pick out, it, it's, it's that need to tell everybody what you've done. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, personally, I'm a very private guy, as you, as, as you know. Um, I, don't, I have no desire at all for people to know what I've done, if, I've, if indeed I've done something somewhere. Because... That's not the reason for doing it. You do it no. because you believe in the cause or you uh, have sympathy, have empathy for the people that are suffering in a, in, a, in a certain set of circumstances. And if you have the resources to respond to somebody else's needs, then you do it and you do it. Um, you, you, you just do it because that's human nature to do it, to help somebody if you're able to do so. You don't need um, to have that identified and to have that lauded. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose the devil's advocate way of looking at this is to say, well, obviously, they're prominent, they're influential by making a public stand, they will influence other people. And that might be true. But it's probably not why they're doing it, because we know that Bill's a bit of a natural showman and everything we've seen with Mashiri indicates that he's got some of the, despite being a an accountant and you know, I'd expect him to, and in many ways, being happy being behind the scenes, when he does come out into the public forum in any way, shape or form, he has a bit of a tendency to overcompensate and maybe overdo things. Mm. Um, I, th I think in terms of, you know, why do fans put up with it? We, we've just got to accept, I think, that such is the shape of football at the moment, that... Everton financially, economically, and commercially are not competitive. 
And if we're not competitive economically, commercially, we're not going to be consistently competitive from a footballing point of view unless we are the absolute best at the academy side of our development and the coaching side. And unfortunately, we've not been ruthlessly focused on that. We're not a club like some of the big Dutch clubs or maybe, you know, some of the second second tier clubs in Spain or Italy who've really accepted where, where their niche is and have decided how they need to try to organise themselves to be successful and to punch above their weight. We, we are still trapped with one foot in our history that we should be able to go toe-to-toe with Manchester United or Liverpool or anybody and compete with them. And one foot in our reality, which is that's simply not the case. And we've consistently, over the last few years, made made schizophrenic decisions. One moment we're focusing on trying to develop young players and, and bring them through, and another moment we're spending vast quantities of money on bang average players like Gilfie Sigurdsson. You know, there's just, there's no consistency in our approach. And until we, and that starts right at the top and at a board that isn't, doesn't have a clear set of objectives, doesn't know what its priorities are and isn't laser focused on what its vision of success looks like. It's too disparate. It's all over the place. It's these confused and mixed messages that we sometimes get from Denise or from Sasha. And if you don't have a clarity of vision and everyone's not pulling in one direction, then you tend to dissipate the efforts of good people. And we do have good people. Brands is is a good person. He's been successful. And Chalotti is a superb coach. Are we capable of organising ourselves from the top down and being clear enough and focused enough in what we want to achieve to get the most out of them? I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it too. I mean, the whole charitable thing, just to close on that and, and why people want to, um, you know, publicise that they've made a donation. That was quite clear with the, oh, we'll give you a refund for your season ticket, but you could choose to donate it to EITC. And people were almost being shamed to, to uh, if, they, if they chose to keep the money themselves. You know, it's just, we, we become holier than thou. And, you know, there's only one way to go from there. Um, I, I think it's just really um, confusing to the media. And the media now, you know, they used to think of Everton as, you know, trophy winners or 80s or Howard Kendall or the Dogs of War, Joe Royal. You know, the last last 10 years in particular, we've, we've just been a charity. That's what we are. And we've been a bloody charity on the pitch and we've been a charity in the boardroom dishing out contracts to players who don't deserve them, both wage levels and length of contract. And it has to stop. And until it does stop, we will not compete and we will be at best. I'd love to ask you both, what would you see a target for next season for Carlo? Because, um, you know, who knows where we finish this year, 8th, ninth, 10th, not very exciting. What do you think next season? What does success look like if you were the chief exec? Paul? Oh, um, I think we have to focus, particularly next year, on um, the cup competitions. If we're looking, you know, if the objective is is success, and to me, success means winning a trophy, then, you know, given that uh, the those clubs that are in Europe are unlikely to compete, for example, in the League Cup, I think yeah. the League Cup becomes a, a major priority. Um, FA Cup, who knows? I mean, you know, some of that is obviously the look of the draw, but um, yeah, we'd have to focus on that um, because I think. Given that all that you've both said, and I, you know, I, I agree with lots of what both of you have said, it's difficult to see how we can be anything more than seventh or eighth in the league. And to be seventh or eighth in the league, we, we have to be performing better than Wolves, performing better than Leicester. And, and you know, sadly, they're, they're in a better position than we are at this moment in time. Yeah, regardless of recruitment at those two clubs, they've both got a style of play. Yep. You know, I remember talking identity. to some Wolves fans before the game a couple of years ago, last season, I think it was rather, and they said, um, "You've got to push up on Connor Cody um, because if you don't pressurise him, he just drops into the pocket and pings it out wide to the fullbacks. And if you don't do that, we'll win." They beat us two 0 
because we didn't do that. And they've got a style of play that works. And yes, of course, there's a lot of Portuguese players there, but Connor Cody, Matt Doherty and others, you know, they've, they've got a really successful brand of football that works. Same with Leicester, tacking wing backs, ball playing midfielders and one man up top. It's a style of football that works and they buy players to fit it. We just don't have a style of football. So it's no wonder that we buy a ragtag and bobtail mixture of licorice all sorts. Yeah, you, you can't have the style when you go through managers of the no, way that we not. do. Of course so now Carlo Ancelotti does have a style. Everyone knows the way Ancelotti sets up his teams. And he's already imposing that on us. Um, you know, the performance against Liverpool in the derby was a classic Ancelotti performance. The team set up in his, his mould and we executed it really well. We did. We, we did something similar at Norwich, but obviously leggy. We were leggy. We'd had two days less rest than them, and it was incredibly hot as well. And that showed, but we were solid. We were difficult to break down, and we got the goal. And it was a classic. It was, it was an away performance to Howard Kendall era, first Howard Kendall era team would have been proud of. Um, it, was, it was efficient. It wasn't, you know, joyous, but it was efficient. And I think um, Ancelotti knows one way to play, and he will impose that. Now, we just do not have a squad that can play Ancelotti's preferred formation of 4-4-2, switching to um, 3-5-2 or 3-4-3 in possession, um, because we have no midfield. And that's the thing that we have to solve. We have to, um, if we do nothing else this summer... We have to address central midfield and we have to find at least one wide player who is a consistent threat for goals and assists because we just do not have very much production at all from the wide positions. Um, the only player we have who is productive from out wide is Richarlison and you know he's more effective through the middle if we can get, if we can get in performance. So yes, we, we're not fantastic maybe in our depth at right back, yes, we could use another centre half, and you know, Mina is a bit up and down. Yes, Pickford's frustrating. All of those things are true, but our biggest problem is midfield. And Ancelotti was a midfielder. Ancelotti knows exactly was was a damn good midfielder at that. He knows exactly what he wants. Whether we can get him what he wants, given the financial constraints we're operating under, and the um, challenges we have of a bloated squad and high wages and players we need to offload like Sigurdsson remains to be seen but if we can then I think we have a chance to be competitive next season what would good look like good would look like playing with shape good would look like knowing that we have a style good would look like the academy actually being in the same image as the first team because that will give us um some continuity in the future and at least challenging in one of the trophy in one of the cups and yeah at least putting together one decent cup run would be progress um but the most important thing for me is that we we are we play with a consistent and recognizable formation and style yeah i'd agree with that so how do we actually get some outcomings or some some outgoing and some incomings i mean i don't want to be a harbinger of doom but why change the habit of a lifetime um we, we we have to we have to sell pickford and richarlison to generate some funds don't we paul if if we were going to go into the market to um you know to, to buy players that commanded a, a premium yes um I, th I don't think it would be a wise thing to sell uh them this se this season in particular because the, the market is going to be deflated yeah um yes you know, quality players are still going to um, attract some premium from one or two clubs. Uh, but I don't think even Richarlison is at that level where he can command um, a, a premium as such. Uh, so I think, I think to try and sell our, uh, our best assets in, in this window in particular would be a fairly, um, fairly stupid move, to be honest. Uh, I think I think we've got I think we've got to muddle through, um, see see what we can get off the off the, uh, the wage book, and then see what we can get in in the loan market. 
you know, we don't have we don't have any. I mean, I'm pretty convinced that we don't have a lot of cash. You know, our cash flow is awful. Our balance sheet looks um, very poor. We're not we're not able to spend from a regulatory point of view. We're not able to spend from a point of view of what cash we have in the bank. Um, and we don't want to sell our best players. So we are, we've painted ourselves into a corner um, and we're so going to be a, in, in that corner for at least another 12 months. So we've got to muddle through, which is kind of what we've been doing since Mashiri arrived, really, but muddling by throwing a little less money away. Um, didn't I read somewhere, though, that it's a two-year reporting period? So couldn't we kind of use that to our advantage in some ways? Well, um, UEFA have said it's a two-year reporting period, so they're they're not going to look at um, financial fair play regulations this year. They're going to carry it forward to next year. The Premier League haven't said anything yet, um, right. and we are, you know, quite quite close, if not above, uh, the permitted losses uh, within the Premier League regulations. So, um, you know, that's that's an issue. But the principal issue is that unless Mashiri puts more money into the club, and I don't think uh, there's a good reason for him to do so, um, we're not going to have funds. We don't have the funds uh, to buy players, even in a deflated market. Yeah. And any money that Mashiri is going to put into the club at the moment is going to go towards the stadium and not towards um, the playing squad. Ah, the uh, stadium. Now but, you bring up the stadium. Yeah, but pause, pause, pause there for a second, because I just want to talk about muddling through. I mean, Brands gave an interview to the Dutch paper De Telegraph um, uh, last week, and he could not have been clearer about what we should expect from this summer. Um, two to three inbound players for the first team squad, not significant expenditure so as paul said we'll be looking at loans we'll be looking at free transfers we'll be looking at uh younger players uh, with modest transfer fees but with significant potential upside and brands spelt out the fact that we have to get more players off our books he was clear that that would mean um continuing to weed out younger players which we've been doing and it also means getting rid of everyone whose contracts are expiring apart from Baines and it means trying to move at least one of you know Schneiderlin, Walcott, Tosin, Tosin unfortunately is injured so he probably cannot be moved who are chewing up wages but not having a great deal of impact. The one player who I think he, from the first team squad who is sellable is Bernard, but only if he's prepared to go to a second-level Spanish or Italian team on lower wages. So it might require us to do what we may have done with Schneiderlin and support some wages, but we might be able to offload him without having a significant impact because I don't think he really fits a Ancelotti 442. In, in terms of his skills and his abilities, you know, but he's a player who has some value and has some qualities that somebody else might admire, but he's not going to raise gigantic funds. So I think mainly what we should expect here is minimal incomings done relatively cheaply, targeted at key positions. Personally, I expect it to be a central midfielder, a centre-back, a wide midfield player, and John Joe Kenny brought back from Schalke. That's pretty much what I expect. And to get rid of as many of the players who don't fit naturally into a four-four-two as we can. You know, the one player who's on relatively high wages, who is not has not performed particularly well this season, who we might be tempted to keep is Theo Walcott, who you know is getting older, has injury problems, and is the headless chicken he's always been. But he is someone who maybe does fit into the way Ancelotti plays and has versatility in that he could play as an emergency striker as well. So so maybe of all the higher wage underperforming players, he's the one most likely to feature in an Ancelotti team in the future. Interesting. And, and do you think 
Um, what about Pickford, though? Surely we could get money for Pickford, and, and surely we could, you know, if we could flog in for 30, 35 million to Chelsea, get a replacement in for 10 or 12, that would free up some funds? But we'd be, we'd be selling Pickford low because he's had a poor season and, you know, there's no two ways about that. Um, most of the teams who it might make sense to invest significantly in a goalkeeper have invested significantly in a goalkeeper. I mean, Chelsea have poured a fortune into Kepa. He's not convinced, but I don't think they'll give up on him this quickly. I just don't see where we'd sell him, to be honest. You know, I, I don't really see that right now Jordan Pickford is a particularly attractive proposition to any team in the top six. And, no, it's up was... to, and it's up to him to perform well enough for us to change that. Yeah, but, it, but I agree with you. But if someone comes along with 30 million, you'd take it, wouldn't you? Depend, depends on what I thought I could do in the marketplace. If I, if I see a keeper out there who I think I can bring in uh, relatively cheaply and I could get a, a like-for-like replacement, you know, for 10 million and make 20 million profit, of course you'd do it. I mean, that's just business. Mm. I mean, Pickford, Pickford, it was noticeable. Ancelotti's comments the other day when he talked about us having a, a, a strong core to the team but, but it not being enough players. And he named seven players. From, and I'm going to try and do this from memory, uh, and I might get this wrong, um, but the three centre-backs, Holgate, Keane and Mina, he named. Yeah. He named um, Gomez. Yeah. He named Dina. Yeah. And he named Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin. Yeah. So I think that tells you everything you need to know about how Carlo Ancelotti views our squad. And the fact that Jordan Pickford was not named was the most notable omission, in my view. Yeah. Hmm, okay. So you mentioned the S word there, Neil. <laughs> I did, I did. Um, obviously, you know, Dan Mice is being Dan Mice on, on social media at the moment. But the fact that Dan ha- has not got a role ongoing in the stadium is actually somewhat old news because... We knew a couple of months ago that, you know, obviously Lang Rourke had been appointed as sort of design-build contractor and that Patton had been appointed as technical architects. While that's, you know, just been sort of republicised, um, that was in the trade press and stuff, like I say, a couple of months ago. It's fairly clear that Dan had hoped to stay involved, maybe in a role on the club side overseeing um, the league contractors to try and make sure the design, um, you know, what got built stayed close to the design. It's pretty clear that in his mind, someone at the club had led him to believe that that would be the case. Um, but, you know, is it, it's not that unusual a decision um, because mice architects are not that big. Um, they're conceptual, they've got a lot of track record with conceptual design and not so much track record with building stuff. Um, they're in the US, so there's some issues and some barriers there in terms of time. And the one thing you don't want to do if we ever do get planning permission and ever do have spades in the ground, so to speak, is we don't want delays in decision making and because that just costs money that we don't have. Um, might we have handled this better? Could we have? dealt with Dan better behind the scenes, possibly, but, you know, I don't know. I'm, I've not been involved, obviously. I don't have the insights of who said what to whom when. Um, does it raise the probability that there will be a few more compromises as we build the design to try and build on time and on budget, assuming we get to that point? Probably. Is it something that really scares me that Dan Mice is not going to be involved moving forwards, not particularly. I think we have bigger issues like where's the money coming from? Yeah, reasonably fundamental, isn't it? It doesn't matter who's going to do it. Do we actually have the uh, the money to pay for it, Paul? What's your current take? Uh, my, my current take is that it's highly unlikely um, that we have the funding in place. And looking forward, you've got to look at two things, I think, in terms of uh, where we were looking to raise the money in the uh, US private placement market. Is there an attitude, is there um, 
an appetite for risk? Uh, yes, in certain sectors that are. Is there appetite for risk in sectors that are heavily dependent upon dis discretionary uh, spending? Um, no, not at this moment in time. And you know, our our ability to fill the stadium, our ability to uh, fill all of the executive seats in a uh, post-COVID recessionary Britain um, has to be has to be questioned. And I think that's the problem uh, that investors would have. From a global perspective, the UK is currently viewed um, as being heavily damaged by COVID and unlikely to respond well in a post-COVID world. Uh, you've got the Brexit situation as well, which is going to compound matters. Uh, Liverpool, uh, as a regional city, um, is also viewed as, as, a, as a negative one because it's regional, two because Liverpool's development over the last few years is heavily dependent upon um, Again, discretionary spend on, on the visitor market, people attending the city either for uh, business conferences or for weekends, uh, stag nights and stuff like that. Um, so the external perception of where Liverpool as a city is, where uh, the UK uh, as a country is, is much more negative than, than one might think from, from within the country itself. And then you've got to look at... Um, how well is this? You know, how well is the club run? We were in a very poor state before we went into COVID nineteen, and we're going to be in a worse state um, after that. I think there's one really interesting point which has come out this morning, which is the Liverpool Economic Recovery Plan. And I don't know if you guys have had time to look at that, um, but it's a, a 1.4 billion pound worth of investment plan uh, to get Liverpool back back up on its feet. Uh, in in a recovery phase, I, I've only had time to scan the document. Um, there's no mention at all of Everton's plans for the stadium that I can see, um, and that the people who are mentioned in the press. So if, if I look on the FT, uh, ft.com, it's uh, Liverpool's chief executive Peter Moore. It's uh, a guy who runs Legal and Generals, in, one of the Legal and Generals investment funds, and it's the vice chancellor of the University of Liverpool. I'm staggered that Everton Football Club aren't included in this. I have to go through the whole plan, but from a quick scan, it doesn't appear that either Liverpool Waters or indeed um, Bramley Moore Stadium feature strongly in this. There's two ways of looking at that, isn't there, Paul? One is that the Everton have been intermittently connected with the power brokers regionally, and they, they've not always done a consistently good job at sort of putting themselves in the in the forefront of local local and national commercial opportunities. So we may just have missed out in this. The other alternative is that the 1.4 billion is regarded as being incremental to projects that are already underway. And Liverpool Waters and including our stadium may already be baked in as investments that are moving forwards anyway. In terms of funding the stadium, um, I mean, obviously, this is an appalling time to be trying to do this. Uh, COVID, Brexit, um, you know, the UK economy is a basket case. Uh, I don't think it's yet properly understood nationally just what a mess the UK economy is in. Um, the It's going to get worse next year, not better, in my view. Um, which is not really played into the forecast. I mean, obviously, there'll be s some banks back from the COVID slump unless there's a big second wave, but there'll, there'll be a Brexit impact as well. To fund the stadium is going to require a significant direct personal investment from Mashiri and or people close to Mashiri, a, a much higher proportion of the funding than he would have wished. Um, that would be ideal um, because, you know, economically, you know, you would rather fund long-term assets with long-term debt. Um, just makes more sense financially. Um, but I really can't see any other option. And then it comes down to a question of, is he in a position to do that? That probably depends on whether other business acquaintances of his, including the, uh, the Uzbek everyone likes to uh, mention, are in a position to help him. And you know, frankly, we just don't know. 
But if machinery cannot fund two-thirds of this cost, I don't see a funding model that's possible in the current environment. I mean, timescales, what do we... What do we think then? We're going to get the planning permission, but that doesn't really make a jot of difference. Planning permission will be valid for how long? Uh, I, 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 I'm not a planning expert, but for several years. I mean. Right, yeah. So just because we get planning permission doesn't mean that, you know, we're about to put a spade in the ground. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, pe people who live locally, as, you know, say that quite a lot of work has been going on on the site in terms of survey work, et cetera, et cetera. So they're sort of giving the impression that the second planning permission is in place. Work will, um, work, work will commence. And it might be possible the machinery would take a gamble and be prepared to self-fund the majority of site preparation work which is going to be really substantial in the hope that the, you know, in 18 months time, it will be more, more easy to access funds for the actual build itself. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really high risk strategy. Um, if, if you're the main contractor, would you take that risk, Neil? Well, if I'm the main contractor, it depends on what else I've got to do, I think. Um, so if Langrock's order books are massive and they're, they're really, really struggling to find um, people, et cetera, and therefore having to pay above the odds, I wouldn't take the risk. If I can construct my contract in such a way that I'm financially protected, um, that I'm, my costs are fully covered up front for the site preparation work, and if the overall environment is relatively negative for construction which i understand it is from talking to people who know more about this than me which is almost anyone um then yeah maybe i'd take that risk providing i was i was confident that i was at least going to get my money and get paid properly for the initial phase so i'd want security i'd want money in escrow there's a ton of things i'd want to be absolutely certain of um because at the end of the day, they, you know, it, it doesn't matter to them per se uh, if it gets built. What matters to them is whether they make money. Of course. Oh, of course. Um, I guess the point being, and also I think if you, if you think about it from Mishiri's perspective, is he literally going to put $100 million to into a hole in the ground to fill the dock, which is what's required in the first instance, and then, and, and then find that actually... We can't acquire the funding uh, to build the stadium, so all yeah. he's done is all he's done it, is fill the dock. It, it, it's incredibly high risk, as I said, Paul. But yep. if, you know, at the moment, all the indications seem, on the ground practically seem to be that we are, you know, doing the work that would indicate that we are preparing for the planning permission to be granted and to swing pretty rapidly into site preparation. If that's the case. I, I think he must either he must know more than we do and there must be a better source of funding in place than we believe is possible in this market or he must be prepared to take that risk or he's just hedging his bets and saying right we'll make a final decision when planning is acquired um i wouldn't be surprised to see us pause for a year and to reappraise the marketplace in a year you know do what we can to put funding in place over the next, over 12 months from planning permission. But the only way we really push ahead quickly, I think, is if Mashiri is prepared to take a significant financial risk. And where do we stand on Goodison capacity, safety certificates, all of that stuff? Because, you know, it really does have a finite shelf life, doesn't it? In, in, in a post-COVID world, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think it's, it's a really interesting question, that, because I think actually it will apply for the new stadium as well. Traditional football concourse designs, I mean, just, you know, think about the experience, even in the newer stadia. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are still lots of pinch points and cramped areas in concourses. Um, 
is that desirable moving forward? Are we going to have to think about bigger footprints, and which you just can't do at Bramley Moore, by the way? And, you know, there, that is an absolute constraint. Or we're going to have to rethink the designs, more segregation within, you know, um, the concourses and stuff like that. Just loads of questions um, about how you would deal with that. But I think I think at the moment you can only deal with the regulations as they currently stand and build to those requirements and then cross your fingers and hope that in two or three years or three or four years, whatever it may be, um, the world has returned to something closer to pre-COVID normal. Uh, because if it doesn't, no mass um, mass attendance sport is going to be long-term viable with um, existing stadia. It's it's just going to be carnage. Indeed. Gentlemen. Good. Well, that's end, that ends on a positive note then. <laughs> It's just, you know, I mean, truly, if we are dealing with a series of pandemics, you know, that becomes our new normal. Everything has to be rethought. But, you know, as a club, you know, we can blame Everton for lots of things. I I think that if that happens, it happens. And if we wind up on the wrong side of it because we've taken a risk at the wrong moment and it blows up in our face, I'd rather we mess up doing something then we mess up because we're too timid to try. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Fair point, fair point. Um, James, we've been talking for over an hour, so I think we should probably draw it to a close there. Um, thank you both uh, for uh, very interesting contributions. I'm sure people that listen to this will uh, welcome the opportunity to hear from two people who, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, um, should be heard more often. So um, thank you both. Uh, we wished we could be more positive about things, but I think it's just a sense of realism and a sense of our own sort of experiences in life um, lead us to the conclusions that we've led us to. So um, thank you both. Thanks for listening, everybody, and um, stay safe out there. Thank you. <laughs>